0: That's Wise W-I-S-E.com. Wise.com.
1: Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month
2: Hey, it's Sean Ailing. Just wanna let you know that the episode you're about to hear is part of a special series exploring reparations in America. The series is made possible by support from the Canopy Collective and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it's hosted by my colleague, Fabiola Cineas.
1: I'm Fabiola Cineas and I write for Vox about race and policy. And today I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations. 40 acres. Reparations is about a debt that the federal government
2: owes to all Black American citizens of U.S. slavery. As a consequence of the failure to provide the 40-acre land grants.
1: It involves the historic acknowledgement of historic wrong and a recognition that the injury continues.
0: Literally, there is no reparations in the form of the payout of money that can undo what has been done.
3: I think apologies don't mean anything whatsoever. I mean, apologies... Uh, The easiest thing in the world.
4: This is returning what was taken from a people.
1: We've made it to the third episode of this series, and so far we've examined what reparations advocates want and how they believe the Biden administration should follow through. If you haven't already heard those episodes, you should definitely check them out. Today, we're taking a bit of a turn to explore why some thinkers believe reparations might not solve the inequalities it seeks to address. I spoke with Marxist scholar Adolf Reed. He's long argued that reparations, a project that would be race-based, would not solve inequality. Reed comes to this subject as a member of the last age cohort for which Jim Crow was a lived experience.
3: And I say segregation now,
0: segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever.
1: He recounts that experience in his new book, The South, Jim Crow and its Afterlives. Reid talked to me about how the Jim Crow regime enforced racism and white supremacy and set the boundaries of daily life. My
0: name is Mrs. Fannie
1: Lou Hamer.
0: It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class
1: citizens. As he writes in the book, the point of Jim Crow wasn't to remove Black people from the mainstream economy, but to enforce their subordinate position within it. And with most of his grandparents born hardly a generation away from plantation slavery in the United States, Reed told me plainly that America owes him nothing. A new Pew study found that 77% of Black adults believe that descendants of people enslaved in the United States should be repaid. Despite the growing support for reparations within the Black community, Reed insists that Black Americans are not interested in what he calls elaborate programs of separate development. I talked to Reed about all of this, but first, we began with his experience growing up in the Jim Crow South. So in your book, The South, Jim Crow and its Afterlives, you say that Jim Crow is the formative Black American experience for contemporary life. And you say that Jim Crow is that formative experience over slavery, actually. So why do you feel that that's the case with Jim Crow?
3: I think there are a couple of reasons, at least. One's pretty prosaic, and that's that the Jim Crow order was between slavery and uh, now. I'd say the 60 years after emancipation, that were moments within the production of American society that most of us know it, and have grown up in it, and have family members before us who grew up in it. And that means like industrialization, the Great Migration, the transcendence or displacement of an agrarian-based economy, urbanization of the society and of Black Americans in particular, the experiences of segregation, the descent of the wall of segregation and the struggle against it and its overcoming are more immediately formative of Black Americans' lives, practices, and, you know, self-understandings than slavery was, or is.
1: And why do you think popular history is trying to kind of bring slavery out to the forefront and, and kind of get Black Americans, I think, to think more deeply about slavery and look at slavery as the foundation? of what our experiences are today?
3: Yeah, that's a very good question. For us, at least the first two-thirds of the 20th century, it had been possible for us to assume that most Black Americans came together around at least one common objective, and that's overcoming racial inequality and discrimination. But as my good friend and comrade, Professor Willie Leggett, has said often, the only thing that hasn't changed about Black politics since 1965 is how we think about it. And what's happened is with passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act, and not just passage of those laws, but the development of an anti-discrimination apparatus that followed from their passage for racial inequality that it might have seemed to be prior to that. What that means also is that interest differentiation among black Americans, as well as class and income differentiation among black Americans has extended, you know, some would say radically since 1965. I believe that people who have political interests in sustaining a view that a one-size-fits-all way of talking about Black politics also have an interest in wanting to make slavery the uniformly shared Black condition. Racial inequality gets reduced to racial disparities. And so much of arguments that focus on racial disparities as the principal, if not the sole actionable forms of inequality, for instance, a Michelle Alexander book, The New Jim Crow, hinges on an analogy that even she has to acknowledge doesn't work. And that is that the carceral state is like the Jim Crow order. Well, it's not, it wasn't, couldn't be. And the same thing with arguments that the 13th Amendment didn't do what the 13th Amendment did, and arguments that the essential condition of Black Americans hasn't changed since 1865 or since 1619. The assertions that nothing has changed for Black people since Jim Crow or since slavery shouldn't be read literally. They should be read as rhetoric. That rhetorical move is, in fact, an acknowledgment that things have changed. And a call on the listeners to demonstrate that this bad thing that happened, this outrage that happened was an atavism, right? And a call on all of us to do better.
1: Why isn't incarceration the new Jim Crow today? Like, why doesn't that analogy work?
3: Well, like, it doesn't work for a number of reasons, right? In the first place, I mean, Jim Crow was a social order that wasn't about putting people in jail. It was about imposing racial hierarchy. So, like, the carceral state develops from different dynamics, right? It's a combination of the drug war, um, you know, get tough on crime policies that preceded that, the emergence of privatized prisons, which then produces like another group with material interest in expanding the carceral apparatus. Black people aren't the only people in jail. And Alexander, when she wrote her way into having to confront the conundrum posed by that last point. Just kind of blew it off by saying, "Well, the whites who are in prison are collateral damage." Well, that doesn't tell us anything, and it also doesn't make sense. And what about the overrepresentation of blacks? What one of the reasons that blacks are overrepresented in incarceration has to do with the emergence of neoliberal forms of policing that are about keeping stress on impoverished or economically marginal populations on the edges or in. Uh, major metropolitan areas. That's spread all over the country. And if you go to areas where there are no Black people, but zip codes of concentrated broke people, then you'll find the same high rates of carceralization. Race has often functioned like a shorthand for class. Stories that we get of quote-unquote respectable Black people who get jacked up by the police stem typically from one of two sources, either the outright bigotry right at the individual level or a case of mistaken identity. Now, that doesn't make it feel any better if you get jacked up.
1: period. Yeah.
3: And I've had that happen to me. My son's had it happen to him. But it's important to keep in mind when Charles Blow's kid got jacked up by a cop in New Haven, That's not the same thing as when a kid from Dixwell Avenue gets jacked up by the police. The kid off Dixwell Avenue or, say, off the Hill section in New Haven has grown up all of his life, Black or Puerto Rican, with the understanding that being jacked up by the police is part of his everyday life, which it isn't for Charles Blow's kid at the residential college of Yale. Mm -hmm. I think the inclination to kind of blur that distinction Uh, Frankly, I find it personally kind of offensive, but at a minimum, like, it doesn't help us figure out what's actually going on. You have this passage where you
1: talk about returning to New Orleans or, or some other Southern city and feeling like, wow, things have changed, but also that feeling of, no, maybe things have stayed the same. So can you talk about that feeling of trying to figure out and decide whether things have actually changed and how this affects Uh, Black people's lives in the South and and elsewhere?
3: When I felt it and tried to articulate it to people, it just seemed like new agey crap. And what I eventually figured out is that the social structures have changed radically, but the existence of social and economic hierarchy rooted fundamentally in political economy has remained the same even as its components have changed so you belong to the last cohort
1: for which the Jim Crow regime is a living memory. Why do you think it's so important to recognize that and acknowledge that right now?
3: Well, uh, yeah, to be honest, uh, be completely honest in a way that wasn't totally forthcoming about in a book. When the two friends and I, whom I mentioned or talked about this for a number of years, what animated our ongoing discussion was the really shoddy character of both a lot of the scholarship and the personal memoirs and the popular constructions of what the era was like and what what it was about. And I had no illusions about changing that, but I thought the least we could do is like get another perspective out there, one that's a little more grounded.
1: Yeah, because you mentioned that these photos and images that we have, because my generation certainly learned about it this way too, through the photos of the water fountains, the segregated restrooms, what do you feel is missing from those images of
3: the Jim Carrara? Yeah, look, I mean, those things were real. I describe it as petty apartheid. It produced indignation, and people sometimes forget that the point was never separate but equal. The point was separate and unequal. But what's missing is that these were more than inconveniences, certainly. But they weren't the deep structure of the segregation order. And that's why taking into account where it came from is helpful. And the dominant planter, merchant, capitalist class had lived in, in what even I thought for a long time was irrational anxiety about the prospects of poor working class whites and black freed people forming electoral alliances that would challenge absolute prerogative like the ruling class. But it wasn't an irrational anxiety because there were enough instances of that kind of political alliance having won victories here or there to keep it real and uh, just sent the message to the ruling class that it was time to take radical action to stop this stuff. And then Jim Crow was the institutionalization of that new regime. And among other things that people don't ever think about is that among the ways that whites were affected by Jim Crow, because it was not a social order that whites imposed upon blacks, it was a social order that some white people imposed on everybody else, black and white. But by disfranchising blacks, and depending on the state you were in, maybe up to a quarter of the white voting population, you took away the potential for political alliances based in the working class and among poor people and farmers. So even those whites who were still able to vote had to make their choices within a context that was heavily skewed to favor the agendas of the ruling class.
1: So what came to replace the Jim Crow order? And I'm I'm curious what parallels you see between today's order and what existed during uh, Jim Crow.
3: We're still evolving away from it, right? Mm -hmm. Because after 60 years now, practically, of the upwardly mobile black and white people going to the same schools, living in the same neighborhoods, belonging to the same club, going to the same coffee shops. What one would expect sociologically is that while race discourse remains as like an organizing principle for factions and alliances, you would expect we would have evolved much more toward a governing regime that's more seamlessly interracial. Mm-hmm. And I think we, by and large, have. I think that depending on circumstances and context, everybody in the elite level has an interest in emphasizing race to one degree or another and in some contexts. an old joke about the Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, around the University of Chicago, was a place where black and white lock arms against the poor. Mm. And I think that's more what the governing order in most cities and in the country is at the moment.
1: Coming up, we dive deeper into the class divides among Black Americans.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash
0: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com.
1: So you say the Jim Crow order was explicitly about race, but at the same time, it fundamentally wasn't about race?
3: Race was the official organizing principle. And I mean, that's how, for instance, you could get a mythology like segregation and lynchings were the product of the empowerment of the white working class in the South who were the real racists because they saw blacks as competitors. Mm -hmm. I can hear my father saying, even when I was a little kid, that, gee, you'd think if the white workers came to power, they would try to get something for themselves, right? They want something more than just to mess over black people. And
1: how did this regime help you understand class differences between black people? You talked a little bit about this before, but You yourself come from a middle-class background, so how did you recognize that there were differences there? And middle-class people had the ability to kind of shield themselves a little bit more from having to kind of interact with white people as often as, like, poor people had to.
3: Well, I mean, actually, a part of it comes from the reflection after the fact. I wasn't capable of that kind of critical distance when I was six or 16, or possibly not even 26. In the moment. Mm-hmm. But the instance that I mentioned at the school I went to in Pine Bluff, where I mean, some of the kids were bussed in from the county. And when I saw this, when I first got there as a 10 year old, I thought that they were getting away with something because they didn't start until three weeks after we did. And they stopped in the spring three weeks before we did. And I went to my parents with a sense of grievance that these other kids didn't have to go as long as we did. And then my father explained to me.
1: And something that I still think about a lot today of just like, can white people actually understand class differences among the Black community? Mm. I feel like Jim Crow, to some extent, obscured that, Mm -hmm. where it was just like, oh, y'all are all Black, so, you know, we're not going to interact with any of you. Like, was there a point where that was no longer the case? Like, was that something that happened with the fall of Jim Crow?
3: Well, one way it happened was whites had become better at making the kind of class distinctions among blacks Mm -hmm. that upper-status blacks had spent most of the 20th century complaining that they couldn't make. And that's become more normal and natural now. But you find Karens out there. There's no shortage of them.
1: So as someone who was Jim Crowed, as the idiom goes, (laughs) is there something you feel America needs to do to rectify the harm that it imposed on you?
3: No. No, look, all history is, is like a history of exploitation and oppression. Mm. About a year ago, I watched a kind of interesting documentary on the Vietnamese-American community in New Orleans. It had been produced for the film festival, and for that reason, the presentation of the film began with a land acknowledgement. Like, I have a particularly ironic view of how land acknowledgments strike me in general, which is that they seem to me to be the equivalent of having jack somebody and then standing over them to talk about their mama, basically. <laughs> but, uh, but putting that to one side, I guess. This land acknowledgment gave props to every Native American grouplet that ever walked through Orleans Parish. And African slaves whose Burial grounds were taken and built on and so forth and so on. So the big New Basin Canal that connected the lake almost to the river, built in the 1830s, was dug with the labor of Irish immigrants, upwards of 20,000 or more of whom died from cholera or malaria or or, God knows what, Mm -hmm. and were buried right in that canal. And I was waiting, and I knew it wouldn't happen, but they don't qualify for a land acknowledgement. A lot of people suffered. That's what exploitation is all about. Now, that's different from, and this sort of turns us toward the reparations question, that's different from a tort action. Direct descendants of people who were killed or dispossessed in Tulsa in 1921. yeah, might have a tort claim. But the thing about a tort is that the harm's got to be direct. It's either to you personally or to somebody in your direct bloodline.
1: I want to talk a little bit about Black politics after Jim Crow. You rigorously explained how Jim Crow was an organizing tool. And you also talk about the scar tissue that you have from living under that regime. But then you also say, despite this, Black people have generally resisted elaborate programs that work to subvert this kind of subordination. But how do we know that? Like, how do you know that Black people aren't interested in programs that target them, and programs that create separate development for their racial group.
3: Well, I mean, movements for it have never gotten traction, mm. right?
1: Or if we think about just general calls for unity and revolution, like, has that not worked to kind of organize Black people?
3: No, I mean, not really. Uh, look, I mean, so I came out of the Black Power movement as a young man, and the radicals lost, mm. and we lost to the new cohort of mainstream. Public officials, and having worked in city government for a while in the Maynard Jackson administration, I could see the ways that we lost. Nothing helps build a constituency better than resources does. And I mean, being able to call somebody in the planning bureau to try to get a zoning variance mm-hmm. instead of having to jam a city council meeting with two hundred people, which is the kind of work I had to do before I went to graduate school in North Carolina, it makes a huge difference in people's lives. And that's how public officials develop constituencies. Black people are concerned about the same stuff that other working people are concerned about. Economic security, healthcare, housing, jobs, education. And there's no way we're going to get those just for black people. And I think the effort to do so may as well be a recruitment campaign for the KKK. I've been asking the same question for more than 20 years now. How do we propose to develop a political coalition that can prevail on a reparations campaign and nobody's given me an answer yet. Because in a democracy, even a nominal democracy like this one, prevailing would depend on generating, if not an absolute majority coalition, at least a big enough plurality to encourage public officials to follow through on the demands and there's no way we can do it. The nature of the demands undercuts the capacity to build a coalition that could pursue them.
1: But aren't we the closest we've ever been, especially if you look at H.R. 40? The amount of lawmakers who have signed on is unprecedented, and we do have a diverse coalition of people calling for Biden to just go ahead and, for example, create a reparations task force by executive order. Has Biden responded? No. But some people argue that this is a sign of hope, the fact that reparations advocates have gotten this far?
3: Well, I don't think they've gotten that far. H.R. 40 has been there for a while. It's also the case that people sign on to bills that they know have no chance of passing all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they sign on to them because they know they have no chance of passing. But even if H.R. 40 were somehow magically to pass, what it would do is authorize a study commission or a task force or something. Right, yep. And, I mean, that's no closer to reparations than we are right now. It's a symbolic move. And it's not a moral question. It's not a question of who deserves what, right? That's a question that you talk about at church on Sunday. That's not a question for politics.
1: But what about, like, examples like the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act? That was something that took many, many tries to get passed, finally got passed this year. I think other symbolic things, like maybe Juneteenth legislation that Biden recently passed to make that a federal holiday. A lot of these things have been in the works for a long time, and and people thought that these things could not get anywhere.
3: Right. But none of them takes a dollar out of the federal budget or any taxpayer's pocket. Mm -hmm. And that's the crucial difference. And I know how these things go. I've seen them over and over. And in fact, I saw this in a 2020 campaign. What it got to was, well, I mean, how about if we just call this reparations, right? And that, to me, seemed like an expression of what's really counterproductive about symbolic politics. Because a commitment is more toward winning support for something that you can somehow twist around and call reparations than it is to winning anything concrete.
1: Mm -hmm. And going back to this idea that Black people aren't interested in programs that would lead to separate development for them. Like, what about the fact that polls show that Black people are interested in reparations for slavery? Like, there was a poll in 2019 that found that nearly 75% of Black respondents were in favor, but 15% of white participants supported it.
3: Well, I'd say two things about that. One is that polls are as much vehicles for producing outcomes as they are for measuring them, but also, What I think the test wouldn't be how people respond to opinion polls, because that's a passive act and people can be thinking, right, like anything. But the test would be what people are willing to support with their votes or what or to struggle for on their own. And I bet you that if those polls, instead of asking about reparations, asked about a $20 an hour minimum wage or affordable housing or improved access to health care, That the numbers would be just as high, if not higher.
1: So what's the problem with asking America to fulfill what it promised to Black people at the end of the Civil War? I know you said it needs to kind of be a direct harm, and and the people who were directly harmed by slavery are no longer with us. Right. But their descendants are still harmed by slavery when we think of, right? A lot of reparations advocates talk about the racial wealth gap and how that keeps Black people from getting certain opportunities. Right. And opportunities that are similar to the ones that white people have?
3: Right, I think there's two problems. The first one is the formulation, asking America to make good on its promise to black people after the Civil War. Because that's not what this would be. This would be to getting the federal government to engage in redistributive policies in the present. This is where the wealth gap is like really a bet noir of mine, because Matt Brunningsworth, work has shown, that three-fourths of the racial wealth gap exists between the richest 10% of black people and the richest 10% of white people. So you can close the racial wealth gap without having any impact on the vast majority of black or white people. In substance, closing the racial wealth gap is about trying to make rich white people less richer than rich black people than they currently are. And like that's a project that doesn't have anything to do with the vast majority of us. And in fact, One might even say it's a project that pimps the vast majority of us because it turns manifest economic inequality, right, into a very narrowly class-based political program.
1: And do you see the wealth gap as a problem?
3: No. No, I don't see the wealth gap as a problem, and especially because work by Robert Manduka has shown that the best way to close the wealth gap is by closing the income gap. So income inequalities are the real problem. And income inequalities are addressable like in the old-fashioned ways. You raise the minimum wage, you increase rates of unionization, and expand social wage policies that provide health security, housing security, so forth and so on.
1: Next, we get into the symbolic nature of reparations and whether symbols can mean anything at all.
2: Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until...
0: That presentation appeared out of thin air.
2: Also, it's eerily on brand...
0: Wait, did that agenda just write itself?
2: Words appear, making this unexplainable case.
4: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds.
2: Really? The real mystery is why I'm only
4: learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
1: Before the break, we were getting into Adolf's perspective about race in America. It's one that's not often highlighted when we have these discussions. And I feel like your explanation of racial classification mm-hmm. also, to an extent, undermines different ideas of like what advocates believe reparations can be. So, for example, you talk about how race is either will or impose or both, and how racial ancestry and heritage is only real if we impose it. Mm-hmm. So this idea that racial heritage can't be denied or rejected, because there's really no such thing as racial heritage right, in biological terms. And so it kind of seems like when we look at reparations programs, like the idea that someone would have to identify as Black for 12 years when they're making a claim, I think that's interesting.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there's no such thing as a biological heritage, true. There's probably not even any such thing as a cultural heritage. And the problem is probably more with the idea of heritage than it is with anything else. And I think that's another problem with this kind of broadly reparative approach to social justice. I mean, it seems to me it makes much more sense, it's much neater and cleaner to take existing inequalities as a starting point. And see, this is maybe as... Ken Warren or Walter Michaels have pointed out, like a difference between socialism and ne- neoliberal reparations. Because in socialism, you never ask why somebody's poor. Ooh. The fact of being deprived is all that's necessary to call forth some remedial action. But in neoliberal reparations, you've got to be poor for certain reasons.
1: If Specifically, if cash payments were to be given out, what would that do to just capitalism and the class differences that already exist?
3: The greater danger about cash payments in the extremely unlikely event that there would be any is that they be taken as the equivalent of a class action settlement. You get the cash payment, and you have nothing more to complain about.
1: And is any part of you, like, not interested in engaging further or taking reparations more seriously because you just feel like it's too hard?
3: No, I don't think it's hard. I just think it's like a waste of time. That's no, not going anywhere. And I mean, we're like maybe one day of oversleeping away from an authoritarian takeover in this country. Yeah. And I mean, the reparations discussion just seems to me like a parlor game, frankly.
1: Mm. Aside from cash payments, what about an apology? Do you feel like there's more room for the United States, Biden right now, to say sorry for slavery? Like, we know an apology has already happened, but... I wonder if there's if you see more room there so, or even like for example Confederate monuments and that kind of movement as well.
3: Yeah, I think apologies don't mean anything but whatsoever. If the Biden administration wants to apologize to somebody they should apologize I don't know to Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Iraq, Yemen, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Guatemala, shall I keep going? No, I mean apologies are the easiest thing in the world. Mm. And I mean, you know, our politics has gotten way too centered on symbolic stuff of that sort. And it's a reflection partly of the fact that we have a political class who can't deliver anything else.
1: And I, I do quickly, to end off this segment, just this idea of going to a poor white person and saying, you now have to pay this tax and this is going to you know, go toward reparations for something that you didn't have anything to do with. But Did they not have something to do with it, especially since no matter what their status is, they have in some way benefited from the institution of slavery?
3: See, that's another one of those parlor game kind of discussions where people try to parse ways directly or indirectly that somebody could have benefited from somebody else or, say, from being white. In a political economy, that's based on slavery. Freeling estimates that More than 300,000 white Southerners fought for the Union because they were opposed to secession and a bunch of them were opposed to slavery. I mean, trying to litigate the past is just the wrong direction to take, right? Because it's counterproductive. It doesn't get us anywhere when it comes to addressing manifest inequalities that exist today. And I think what we need to do is to try to find ways to generate a mass popular movement to address broadly shared inequalities. That exists today.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you think it's gonna take to create this mass movement, because you're you're saying that, you know, the radicals didn't win, the Black Panther Party, they didn't win. Right. But now it feels like neoliberals are winning. Like is Biden winning right now? And also like you say that these issues are broadly shared, but specific issues like maternal mortality just affecting black women in a way that it doesn't affect other groups of women, if we look at that racially. For example.
3: Well, well, look, here's the thing. First thing we'd have to do is to decompose uh, the sources of maternal mortality, right? Yeah. To get a clear sense about what the actual differences are and how they shape up across class and income and access to healthcare and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But even so, see, I think that's taken us off like in the not best direction. Because the reflex is to look for ways that Blacks stand out. That Black suffering is unique. And that's not the way to go if you're trying to build a broad-based political movement. There are no doubt multiple reasons that contribute to that disparity. Just because a disparity exists doesn't mean that racism, however defined, is the source of the disparity. Say, COVID disparity, for instance, which over time evaporated, but if you say that, well, the reason that Black and Hispanic rates were higher in early going than whites had to do not with race in particular, but with the kinds of jobs they worked, where they lived. The neighborhoods, yep. dependence on public transportation.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then a the response from the race reductionists is, well... But those differences are the products of racism in the previous generation. Well, that's got crap all to do with what you have to do to address the inequalities that exist today. So the way I would approach this is that you first find the points of solidarity and then work to address the differences from within that shared solidarity. And that's like a cardinal principle of the labor movement.
1: So how is this thinking different from thinking that we're post-racial? Like, how should we be thinking about race in this framework you just identified?
3: Well, I guess first thing I'd ask you is uh, what post-racial means.
1: Yeah, I I can't (laughs) define—yeah, yeah, yeah, right.
3: Because I've never thought of uh, it—in fact, it never made any sense to me as a construct. The means through which the dynamics of inequality are expressed is race, just like gender. But that's not a causal statement. That's not saying that— race or r- racism causes the inequalities. Mm-hmm. It's just that for reasons that have to do as much with history as anything else, people who occupy those categories are in some ways likely to be more vulnerable to shocks in the economy and crises and are more precarious than people who don't. But that's not absolute either.
1: So were people wrong to call Bernie Sanders out for not paying enough attention to race. Like, I feel like there was an outcry by saying, Bernie did not right. do enough to right. talk about, you know, the problems that Black people felt uniquely affected their group.
3: And I tell you what, I worked in both campaigns. hmm And both times, like, I had a number of encounters around that question from people of color, right? I would just go down <laughs> the Sanders program mm-hmm. item by item, and then say, so wouldn't Black people and and Hispanics benefit disproportionately from this item if we were to win it? And people would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't think of one instance when I was talking to working-class people where at the end of the conversation, they didn't say, well, I see your point. Mm-hmm. Now, among professional and managerial class people, yeah, I mean, they weren't satisfied. Because right? Bernie's agenda wasn't a professional and your managerial class agenda. So
1: ultimately, you're saying, like, we should not be designing any programs, anything that specifically tries to get at racism.
3: Well, how do you get at racism in the first place? Right? How do you do that? Close to the end of my teaching, I did a course on Black American political thought. Mm -hmm. And it was a very heavy reading course for graduate students. And a student who led uh, a discussion on a mass of readings from the mid-30s to the mid-40s began by saying she was kind of surprised to see that nobody called for fighting racism, but that everybody called for pursuing some programs and defeating others. Because racism is an abstraction. Calls for defeating racism are like calls for defeating terrorism. What we should be focused on is specific programs, initiatives, and broad vision.
1: Any final thoughts (laughs) that you think folks should kind of walk away with when we think about just what our perception of the Jim Crow era is and how we should be thinking about the future and how to make America a better place?
3: The key thing about the Jim Crow era is that it was an historically specific moment in American history tied to a region. I often said in my classes that All four of my grandparents were fully sentient beings, if not full adults, by the time the Jim Crow order consolidated across the South, and the back of the regime was broken with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, I turned 18 the year the Voting Rights Act passed. So that's how long that system lasted. And it was the product of a particular set of social relations in a context of a political struggle. It was defeated. It's gone. It's been gone. And the way for us to move forward to make America a better place is to try now to fulfill the potential that was defeated after the end of World War II Mm -hmm. and again in the mid-60s. And I would urge, like everyone, to forget the reparation stuff and to focus on concrete issues like housing, healthcare, education, employment that are more meaningful to and affect more... Black people on a daily basis, even than police reform would.
1: Mm. And you talked about like increasing the minimum wage. What are some other specific programs or, or policy ideas that you think would fall into that, the housing, the health care kind of reform that we need?
3: I mean, there's been a movement for single payer health care or the Medicare for all, as it's called now. That would be one, one way to go. I think another route would be to pursue real national health care. What we need to do is take what should be public goods out of the realm of commodities. The right to a job and a living wage, the pursuit of a full employment economy, and expansion of unionization. And, like, you know, that's a start. I mean, there's other stuff, like shift to progressive taxation and greater regulation of the financial sector toward public goods, or toward the interest of the public good, like instead of the banks.
1: Ed Alfred, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Well, yeah, well, thanks for having me, Fabiola. It's nice to meet you, and it's been a fun discussion.
1: Next time, in the final installment of our mini-series, 40 Acres.
2: I believe that money can be a form of medicine.
1: A look at some local efforts to provide reparations and what it has meant for those communities. This episode was produced by John Quillen Hill. The Vox Conversations team includes Eric Janikis and Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mix and master this episode. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director.
2: This podcast was supported by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast, or wherever you listen.
4: Support for this podcast came from SAS.